This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. As you've heard from several speakers today, Africa's long been recognized as the cradle of humankind. So when you come to visit, we rightly say, welcome home. And today's presentations make it clear that Africa was home to important hominid and hominin fossils that long predated Homo sapiens. And I think as Bahani uh, made the point so elegantly, there are no boundaries really between when we see Homo sapiens first appearing and when some of the, the earlier fossils lived. And based on the evidence from Chad, the African hominid record may begin as early as seven million years ago. And another surprise from West Africa is the westerly occurrence of astrolopithecines that are quite different from those in the Rift Valley. In South Africa, there are hundreds of astrolopithecine fossil remains dated several, several million years ago. Now, this seems counterintuitive because they're only scraps of Homo sapiens fossils that should be much better preserved. Australopithecines seem to have foolishly loitered close to the treacherous openings of Dolomite caverns where they became victims. But Homo sapiens populations seem to have avoided those death traps. So the paucity of their bodies may reflect burial practices far away from their home bases. Yet the grisly cannibalism that we saw at Classy's River may be yet another reason for the scarcity of modern human bones. Since hunters in the Middle Stone Age were highly proficient, we know that, cannibalism most likely speaks to symbolic practices of the time, and that in itself is really interesting. We heard today that the earliest stone tool technologies may go back to 3.3 million years ago. And the core flake technology of the Olderwin industry appeared in East Africa when Australopithecines, Homo habilis, and Homo erectus, sometimes known as Homo ergaster, may have coexisted. While we're inclined to believe that the bigger brand Homo must have been the toolmaker, we shouldn't be overconfident about that, as you heard today. Even the assumption that Homo erectus was responsible for hand axe production might be flawed, for we see at concert that Homo and Australopithecine remains were found together at about 1.4 million years ago. Some of the hominins we heard spoken of today seem to have represented evolutionary dead ends, while others went on to bear the genes shared by all of us here. Advances in genetic studies have provided some recent surprises, even some shocks. Until a few years ago, who would have dared to suggest intimate liaisons between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals? 
Of course, the scandal didn't happen in Africa. <laughs> not for puritanical reasons, but simply because Neanderthals have not been found in Africa, or at least not yet. Genetic research will surely lead the way for many new interpretations of Africa's past. Until quite recently, we er erroneously assumed that Homo sapiens was the sole surviving hominin in the Middle Stone Age of Africa. We now know that we were not alone here and that we shared space with other Homo species like Homo naledi. What we don't know yet is how the landscape and resources and technology were apportioned between these uh, species. And we can no longer be sure that every Middle Stone Age site was occupied solely by Homo sapiens. This new evidence is unsettling, but it's also stimulating and challenging. We're fortunate to have ever-evolving scientific technology to aid our explorations here. You've heard some of the ways today, like DNA, isotope readings, that metaphorically put flesh on ancient bones. And diet is a theme underlying several presentations today. And although food is a seemingly uncontentious issue, its role in shaping evolution and culture is not clear-cut. The consumption of seafood has been thought by some researchers to impact positively on brain development through time. And it's been detected through stable, carbon, stable isotope studies of human teeth. Other remains on teeth from earlier strolophysines, like the one from Chad that you heard about, show that it consumed sedge tubers and underground storage organs are an important source of carbohydrate for modern humans, particularly in the winter months when African game meat is particularly lean and its protein can't be metabolized without additional consumption of fat or carbohydrate. So charred underground plant parts representing cooked food that you've heard about both at Classy's and Border Cave, were really important. And by this time, many Middle Stone Age sites have deep, deep stacks of fireplaces, suggesting that by this time, people had control of fire and could reproduce it. Now, almost 2,000 years ago, Pliny the Elder wrote, there's always something new out of Africa, and his statement is as true now as it was then. The African narrative you've heard today is based on the most recent evidence that we can give you. But each new field trip yields surprises. So today's story won't be the last word. That's definitely the case. <laughs> Whatever we told you today, it should be different tomorrow. That is the thrill of the field we are in. Every time we are adding a little bit of information, and whatever we told you today is going to change tomorrow. It will.
We just finished our field work two months ago in the afar. But you will not get the results, you know, for the next three, four years till we finish the analysis, okay? Because we don't want to write to, to publish in Nature today and say, and get another paper after three years and say, we were wrong. Then it will count two papers. So we are not for that. So we have to tolerate, but you'll get new information every year. Okay, now for the questions. The first question goes to John Kiwi. From what I have heard, I have read, Australopithecus sediba had a long term but small brain. The next set of fossils shows longer, larger brain did honey dexterity help drive brain enlargement? Thank you for whoever posted that question. It's, it's a tricky one because it's hard to associate the physical features that you see with brain development. Yes, we see the, the hand of Sidiba has changed towards the human-like form or homo-like form, but we don't know what's happening within the brain itself. So there isn't a clear correlation between the features you see in the physical features you see in the bones and what you see in the hand. But we are, what we know is that the hand of Sidiba, for example, the, the thumb is very homo-like. But the other fingers, they are still chimpanzee-like. The, the brain of Sidiba is, in fact, at, almost at the lower, just the upper scale of, of the chimpanzees. So what's happening with the, the brain is not necessarily correlated with what's happening in what we see in the physical development of, of the hand. Thank you. Thank you for the answer. Okay, the next one is for anyone who may answer. New discoveries, okay. New developments in understanding how much the geographical distribution of finds reflects population distribution versus likelihood of preservation and likelihood of discovery. Uh, You know, whatever we we, we have, you know, from the fossil distributions that we have seen, I don't think it reflects, you know, the, the distribution of humans. One, how much of the landscape, if we take only Africa, how much of the landscape has been discovered, have been explored. From what you have seen, a big part of Central Africa is totally unexplored. It's thick forest, it's dangerous, and it's not safe. Nobody really did any kind of survey. And the other thing, it's inaccessible. But that doesn't mean the early humans did not live there. The only thing that we can say is nobody had a chance to explore it. And the same thing in the Sahara, except in the last you know, 20, 20, 30 years, 
with the work of Brunei and colleagues and his Chadian colleagues like Lucius and others till they did the exploration. Those Copans who tried a long, a long time ago around Chad and they found one enigmatic hominid. But for so many years we had no information. So whatever we are seeing, these different dots, they don't really represent the distribution of humans were just only on those. That is just shows only our work was deficient. It doesn't tell you about the population of the prehistoric people. It doesn't tell you about the occupancy of the, uh, of the area. But when we survey more, we may, get, we may find more, and then that will, may give us information. But even after we survey, that doesn't mean every human beings who lived and died there were preserved. What percent of the fossils of these early ancestors, what percent of them was preserved in the fossil record? Maybe one percent, maybe less. So I, I don't think it's, you know, we can say anything about, about that. So this is just a chance. And remember, one thing that you have, we have to remember is if we find fossils seven million years ago in Chad, close to six million years ago in Ethiopia, and then another six million years ago in Kenya, that means in that triangle, these early ancestors were moving around. When they move around, it is thousands of kilometers apart. That means they lived and died in between. So that whether we find the fossils or not, that will clearly tell you that they have been in the triangle. But I don't think they were restricted in that triangle. They were all over, but what we are finding are just, those are the only data that we have. Doesn't tell you anything about the population size or any, uh, any other information. Okay, the next question. Larger brains are more uh, vulnerable to skull impacts. How much could that affect lifestyle? One thing that we have to know, big size of brain does not tell you anything about the quality of the person. You know, <laughs> it doesn't tell you anything. Above a certain critical level of critical size, I think the most important thing is the, the brain differentiation. The frontal part, the temporal part, and the occipital part. This differentiation is the most important thing. And size may not mean much. May not mean much. So I have answered two questions. <laughs> okay. The third one is what? Okay. What is the range of cranial capacity in modern humans, male and female? This, the range of cranial capacity is. I think Linda will answer that better than I do. <laughs> okay. 
You know, the range of cranial capacity varies from, you know, in modern humans, if you use, you know, W.W. Uh, Hull's, you know, record of modern humans, the range goes from, you know, 1,200 cc. Like we are talking about normal humans. But in humans, there are abnormalities where you have, you know, microcephalics, which can be as small as an Australopithecus head, and then hydrocephalics, which can be 2,000, you know, 3,000, you know, it's huge. But when you consider only their normal range, it can range between like 1,250 to around 6,700, uh, 1,600, 700 cc. But this is just the range of variation, but it, it means nothing. As once you are above a certain level, the most important thing, as I told you, is the differentiation of the, uh, of the brain. Okay. And for further, okay. For future presentation, geographic changes over the past two million years of Africa. How the change of the continent may impact hominin migration also climate change and impacts on migration. Who, who wants to volunteer to answer this? I don't want to answer everything. <laughs> Maybe John. Yes, the geographic changes and how they have been over the past million years and how that might have impacted hominin migration. This is still a subject of research that is still going on, and you have heard some of the talks. There is so much we don't know about what the range of exploitation of not just our ancestors, but also our early members of our own species, what range they could have occupied, and what adaptations they could have to explore those those ranges. So they could have adapted to the coastal areas, as, as you saw. They could have adapted to the terrestrial areas. And Africa has a wide range of topographies. And we have found hominids in different areas of those topographies. In South Africa, it's usually dramatic areas. They are we have caves, that's where we are finding hominids. In East Africa, is usually on, on the plains and savanna-like regions. So the hominids would have adapted in different ways, and this was based on you have to survive, you have to move on to maybe one area to the other, depending on the resources that are available. Just to add to John Kibbe's uh, idea, and one thing what we have seen in the course of human evolution, what we did is we keep expanding our niches. Expanding our niches means what we eat keeps adding. We did not drop what we used to eat at the beginning. If we were you know, forest adapted, Animals at the beginning, 
only fruit eaters. When we expand our niche, we started adding hard seeds, like expanding into the savanna. And then in the course of our evolution, what we did is we keep expanding our niche without dropping the first one. So what it means is that gave us the flexibility to live in any changed environment. We, are, we may be the only animals, the only animals who are not really controlled by barriers. When the climate changes, what does it mean? That means there are barriers for some animals. But most, you know, we humans have the capacity to eat practically everything. We are omnivores. We eat practically different kinds of animals, and barriers are minimal. Unless there are physical barriers, I think food is, not, is no more a control for us. That's why we started in the tropics. Where are we now? All the way to the North Pole. And the whole cross-section is controlled. I think this different climatic change might have affected us physically, but in terms of resource, we are able to exploit everything and the effect that had on humans and early hominids was minimal, especially after developing a material culture where able to manipulate our environment. And at, to the point that it's becoming dangerous even to the, modern, to the modern life, we are doing it to the extreme. So that means there's no barrier for humans, no barrier. We're running a little bit short of time, so I'm going to pick three questions. And the first one is for Sarah Wirtz. Was the move in occupancy from Cave 1 to higher Cave 1A in classes precipitated by sea level rise? No, it was not. People lived um, firstly in Cave 1, and then they lived on top of their kitchen waste. So then the cave one filled. So then they lived on top of that into cave one and eventually into cave two. So it was not precipitated by the sea level rise. And the next question is for Judith Seeley. Were complicated food preparation techniques required to be able to safely exploit coastal shellfish, mollusks and crustacean food? No, they weren't. You can eat these things raw, and indeed, you know, in uh, many cultures today, people still eat them raw. Raw sea urchins, for instance, are a delicacy. So it's not necessary to cook them. If you collect things like snails or um, oysters that are tightly closed, you may want to put them on a fire to get the animal out of the shell, but, it's, but cooking isn't really necessary. Um, you might want to... It's possible that people did something to soften them up a bit because some of them are pretty tough, but we don't have a very good handle on that. 
And the last question um, is for me, so I'll answer that. Uh, what was the likely reason early humans lost their fear of fire? Was it likely a molecular behavioral change or instead a group of adventurous early humans learning to control fire and passing on these skills to their progeny? You know, it's a very interesting question, but I can't answer it because I, I simply don't know the answer to the question. Um, I, th I think it's something that's, that's worth thinking about in the future, but I'm sorry, I just can't do it. So. Okay, so it falls to me to thank those who made the symposium possible, to the chairs, our speakers, all our sponsors and supporters, the audience attending, and for your questions. And of course to the Linda and the team and the UCTV team and Kent and the SOC team. Okay, well thank you very much and thanks to everyone. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.